Good evening and welcome to our evening service at Beckles Baptist Church. Uh, my name is Peter Skerritt. I serve here as the assistant pastor and I'm delighted that you've been able to join us and find us online. Tonight we're thinking about the theme of love. Uh, love is something that everyone is looking for, something that most people have experienced in some form or other. But let's read together a short passage from the Bible that defines and depicts what love is looks like. It may be a familiar passage to you as we start. It's a passage often found in weddings and the like, uh, but it's actually a, a little passage from a letter written to a church. So this is not just instructions for a, a newly married couple, but it's for every Christian in every church. So we're going to read together from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, starting in verse 4. Let's read together. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Let's pray for our time together. We thank you, Father, for this revelation of love. And thank you that we, as your children, have received that love through the Lord Jesus. We thank you that you have been most patient and kind with us. We thank you, especially in the Lord Jesus, that you did not seek your, he did not seek his own interests, but uh, those of us. Thank you that he laid down his life for us. And Father, our prayer is today, in our time as we sing, as we listen to your word, as we speak to you, that you would grow our understanding of this love, that you would teach us of it. Though it is beyond all uh, comprehension, we pray that you might teach us more of your love. And we pray that we'd be shaped by that love too, that we would learn to love one another in the way that you have loved us. So we pray that uh, for this time together, asking for your spirit to be at work by your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to start uh, together by singing a song, Love Divine or Love's Excelling. Feel free to sing along as it comes up on the screen or just to listen and to reflect on the theme of God's love to us and God working love in us. Breathe, 
As a church, uh, we have uh, our, a daily Bible reading plan where we encourage every member of the church, if they want to join in, to read uh, one chapter or two chapters of the Bible each day. We believe that that is the way that we get to know God, we get to know what he likes, what he loves, and, and how we ought to live and to trust in him. Uh, if you've been following along recently, you'll be heading towards the end of Deuteronomy and heading into the book of Joshua. And we've put together a short video just to flag up for you what you should be looking for as you come to read the book of Joshua. Joshua is a book of fulfillment, particularly the fulfillment of God's promises. As Israel stands on the edge of the River Jordan, on the boundary of the promised land, we step 
into a book charting the fulfillment of God's promises made hundreds of years before to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. He promised them a land of their own, the land of Canaan. Now, how does God fulfill his promises? Well, firstly, God gives his people a new leader. Moses has died, and a new Moses is given, Joshua, to lead the people to obedience, victory, and rest. And in this, we've lots to learn about the kind of leaders that God provides for his people, not least the Lord Jesus, whose name, by the way, in Hebrew, was Joshua, Jeshua, God saves. Secondly, God gives his people fresh courage. Whilst he he terrifies his enemies, he strengthens his people. Be strong and courageous is the constant refrain throughout the whole book. And it's the obvious result of knowing that God will never leave you or forsake you. And again, as we see the likes of Joshua and Caleb stepping out into the breach, we'll learn lots of what courageous faith looks like. And by contrast, we'll see what cowardly living looks like too. Thirdly, God gives his people great victories. If God is fighting for his people, well, who can stand against them? Not the city of Jericho, not the city of Ai, not any other coalition or group of hostile kings or nations. And at this point, this also helps us make sense of some of the more distressing scenes in the book of Joshua. It's hard not to read some of the slaughter and not be shocked. But to remember that these are hostile nations with horrible practices helps us appreciate the actions of a holy God as he wipes out the unrepentant, but welcomes with open arms foreigners like Rahab or the Gibeonites, anyone who will make peace with him, who will make this God their God. Fourthly, last but not least, God gives his people the promised land, bit by bit, The land he promised them, he gave to them. Now for us, it would be fair to say that the middle sections of Joshua seem a little bit monotonous. It's being described as a map without pictures. But for an Israelite, these lists were momentous. A centuries-old promise was becoming clear and being kept before their very eyes. Now in terms of structure, the book could be split into four big sections. Firstly, Entering the land, chapters 1 through 5. Now This reads like a new beginning for a new generation of Israelites in a new land. Secondly, taking the land. Chapters 6 through 12 is basically a long list of battles won and kings beaten as God fights for Israel. Thirdly, dividing up the land, chapters 13 through to 21. And in this map without pictures... The promised land is divvied up between the different tribes of Israel. And fourthly, living in the land. Chapters 22 through 24. Joshua at this point is now very old and concerned for the future of Israel. As he rehearses God's covenant commitment to them, he recalls them and reminds them of their covenant commitment to him. He says this, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. And this ties up the theme of fulfillment in the book of Joshua. Whilst there is no question 
that God has fulfilled his promises to Israel, one question remains. Will Israel fulfill their promises to God? They say, we will serve the Lord our God and obey him. But will they? Well, we'll have to wait until the book of Judges to see how that works out. Well, we turn now from the book of Joshua in the Old Testament uh, to the book of 1 John, which is what we're focusing on in our evening services at the moment. We're in the middle of a series called Confident Christianity. And just a reminder, 1 John is the, the first letter written by John the Apostle uh, to various churches in the area of uh, Asia Minor, the kind of modern-day Turkey area. And he's writing to them just to show them they, they can be confident in their Christianity. We've come to uh, 1 John chapter 3, and we're going to start reading from verse 10, which is the little number 10. Teresa's going to give us our reading, and we're thinking about the love of the children of God. I'm reading from 1 John chapter 3, verse 10, down to 24. This is how we know who the children of God are, and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and we see a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask, because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. The one who keeps God's commands lives in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. Amen. We're going to pray now as we come to God's word. Father, we thank you uh, that it is by your spirit uh, that you reveal to us uh, the very mind of God we pray that today uh, that same spirit would be doing that same work. Uh, that when we first believed, he convinced us of the truth. We pray that now as we read these words and think about them together, that your spirit would be convincing us again 
of the truth of these words, that we might live them out, that we might trust what you say. We ask that for Jesus' glory. Amen. Now, Jerome, who was a church writer a long time back, tells the story of the Apostle John who wrote this letter. He talks of John in his old age, as John was wheeled into the church that he was a pastor of in Ephesus. And John had to be, well, not wheeled in, but carried in on the arms of his disciples. He was that old. And as he was sat down in front of everyone, the story goes that he was unable to say anything except this. Little children, love one another. Now that's fine once or twice, but it seems that this was the only thing he was able to say. And apparently his congregation were a little bit tired of him saying the same thing. So much so that they said to him, Master, why do you always say this? Because, he replied, it is the Lord's command. And if only this is done, this is enough. Now, I wonder, as you read that reading, whether you felt much the same as John's congregation. As we come to verse 11, and he writes this, This is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. We might well say with John's congregation, John, why do you always say this? I mean, we've been reading through the book of on John, and if you haven't picked up that love's important, then you haven't been listening. We're thinking, John, why do you always say this? We get the point. Love one another. Love's all we need. Blah, blah, blah. But John's not going to let us get away with that tonight. He's not going to let us move on too quickly from that simple command, love one another. For one thing, we know, don't we, from experience, that repetition is, is the mother of all learning. But actually for John, this is much more important than that. He's been cycling through in the letter of three vital signs, spiritual health checks of healthy spiritual life. How you live, what you believe, and how you love. And that's where we've come to today, and that's why it matters. Love one another. And in the passage before us today, John gives us three compelling reasons to do one simple thing. Love one another. Firstly, because love has always distinguished us as God's children. Now, have you ever thought about what distinguishes one family from another family? What makes one family different from another? There are all sorts of things, aren't there? There's uh, abilities. Some families you know will be particularly gifted sportsmen, and others will be talented musicians. Some will be swats in school. Uh, all sorts of abilities that people will have. Then there's character traits. Some families just tend to be you know, a bit more studious and, and serious. And then there are others who are full of fun and uh, their, their home is a vibrant place to be. Characteristics can mark out a family. But what distinguishes the, the family of God, the children of God? Well, John says one thing, love. Now, picking up on, on that sharp division he made last week, where, where John divided the world into the two camps, into two families with two fathers. John is making the point here that love has always distinguished God's children from the children of the evil one, Satan, the devil. And his evidence for this is Cain and Abel in verses 12 and onwards. Now, if you don't know the story of Cain and Abel, well, Cain and Abel 
were right back in the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 4. Cain and Abel were the children of Adam and Eve. That means they were the first generation of children, of people, humans, since the fall where Adam and Eve disobeyed God. And they were the second generation of humans ever. And even then, at that point in time, it was very clear who belonged to God and who didn't. Now the story goes like this. Cain simply murders his brother. And in doing so, it's very plain which family he belongs to. John writes in verse 12, Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Even there, drawing a division, Cain and Abel, two different families within the same family the family of God and the family of Satan. And we're meant to see that from this, Cain's action when he he brutally murders his brother, it's not just like a one-off violent act. It's not just one blip on a a pretty good record. Now, this murder, this brutal murder of his brother is like the culmination of a life. We're told, aren't we, in verse 12, the little number 12, that his own actions, not just this one action of murder, but his actions, his life, was marked by hate and murder. And Jesus himself confirmed that, didn't he? In Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, well, murder, murder is the final destination when you walk along the road of hate. That's where you end up. And that's where Cain ended up. Cain is, for John and for you and for me, a picture portrait of life in the family of the evil one. That is actually, for John, life in the world. Life uh, for those who, who aren't Christians. That is for you and me before we were adopted into God's family. That's Cain. But that is not how God's family are distinguished. That's John's point. Verse 14, we're told, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. The surefire test of spiritual life, John says, is brotherly love. You want to know if there's life in there? You've got to see if there's love out there. Now, I've been told that there are some things that that just go well together, aren't there? Some things like uh, fish and chips, tea and biscuits, uh, apparently in Yorkshire, Wensleydale cheese and fruitcake. It's a Yorkshire thing. Some things just go perfectly together. And then there are some things that just don't go together. Apparently, navy blue and brown doesn't go well together, so I'm told. And equally, fish and cheese. I don't think they go together. But there are some things that go together, some things that don't go together. And John is saying, well, yeah, love and life, they go together. Even death and hate, they go together. But life and hate, not at all. They they don't fit. They can't go together. Verse 15, John writes, anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. What does a murderer do? Takes life. So how can someone who loves life take life? It, It doesn't fit. And John is saying that love and life go together. But hate and life 
Not at all. They don't go well together. It's more than that. They, they can't go together. They're poles apart. Hate might well mark the children of the world. But John says, hate can never mark the children of God. It is love that has always distinguished us from anyone else. Now at this point, some of you will perhaps be thinking, well, I mean, is John really saying that, that, that Christians have the, the monopoly on love? Is he saying that, that non-Christians, I know my family, that they can't love? Is that, is that what he's saying? Well, it depends what you mean. So uh, can people who aren't Christian do wonderful, sacrificial things? Can, can they be good parents and loyal spouses and uh, excellent colleagues? Can they do extra acts of service and sacrifice? Well, of, of course they can. We've seen that in the recent response to COVID-19, haven't we? As we celebrate our key workers, it's just one example of sacrifice from people who don't necessarily know Jesus. But can they love? That's the question. And it depends how you define love. And if, as Christians do, we define love by God, well, then you need to know God to truly love. And even then, in that sense, actually we're saying even the kindest, most caring non-Christian, well, they can't love in the sense that God means by love. But more on that in a moment. For now, John's not so concerned about love or hate in the world. What his concern is, is love in the church. And that's what we should be concerned about too. That is what we should be known for as a church, as individuals and, and as Beckles Baptist Church, love. I mean, no matter what people think of, of our ministry or, or the message that we preach or the mission that we're on to make disciples of Jesus, the one thing that they should not be able to fault is our love for each other, love. I remember personally experiencing this as a second-year student up in Durham, um, I'd been struggling uh, for about a year or so to, to find a church where I felt like I, I fit, that, that I knew people. Who, uh, the, the problem was I was going to church with the same people I knew and then leaving that church with those same people and not meeting anybody else in between. So come second year of university, I thought, I, I think I might need to do something about this. So I thought, I'll go to my friend's church. And I snuck into the Freshers' Welcome Supper. That is the, the kind of first-year students' welcome tea, welcome to our church, welcome to Durham, even though I wasn't actually in my first year. And I've said it before, and I'll say it again. I had actually never been to a church welcome supper that was quite so welcoming. For me, that was just so striking, and I stuck. I went back the next Sunday, and that was me there for the next few years. I was compelled by the fact that these people knew me and welcomed me, and they loved me. And it was a genuine love that went beyond a Sunday. That was really powerful for me. And I'm really grateful for those times where I was loved by others. Now, God's family should be like that. We should exude and kind of emit and radiate out love. We, of course, know that you take the Beckham family. They should be good at football or maybe music, depending on what you think about the Spice Girls. Take the, the Jacksons, the Jackson family. Well, they were obviously all very talented at music. Well, God's family, we should be good at love. 
because love has always distinguished us as God's children. And secondly, because love has been shown to us as God's children. And it's at this point that John rightly feels the need to define love. I said, when, when the Beckhams are, are good at football, well, how would you test that the Beckham family are good at football? Well, they can score goals, they're athletic, and they can kick a football. Well, that would be a good starting point. And again, take the Jackson family, the Jackson Five. Well, how do you know that they're good at music? They've got a sense of rhythm. They can sing in tune. They can play any number of instruments. Those would be kind of good marks of discerning what it means to be good at music. But when it comes to defining what does it mean to be good at love, well, that's where we can sometimes come undone. For some in our world, of course, love just means romance. It's the same thing, chocolate, roses, and the like. For others, uh, love has come to mean really just sexual intimacy. And, and TV shows like Love Island don't really help get beyond that. But for others, love means loyalty. And we maybe we chime with that a bit more. Childhood sweethearts and ruby wedding anniversaries. And maybe at some of those definitions of love, what you might smirk at, at the, like their definitions. But don't you think actually as, as Christians that we have our definitions of love too that can be also just as limited? Uh, for example, it's easy, I think, to, to think that loving each other uh, means just being kind to each other, as if that's all it means to love one another. Or to think that um, if I really enjoy spending time with people on a Sunday at church, that I must love them because I quite like them. Well, is liking someone the same as loving them? Or again, uh, others may well, and that you may well have heard this, that actually a, a church that's really loving should be a place where everyone feels comfortable and that no one feels challenged and that you can just be what you are the way that you want to be. Now, is that a loving church? Well, I think if we stick with any one of those definitions, we're going to become, well, we'll come undone. And that's why John says, no, you're meant to be marked by love. And this is what I mean by love. In verse 16, the little number 16, John says this, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. There you go. That's the definition. This is how John's dictionary reads. Love. That thing, what Jesus did. That's it. Love is Jesus. Love is to, to see a need. To, to feel that need. And then to feel that need, whatever the cost. To see it to feel it, to fill it, whatever the cost. And is that not what Jesus did? Jesus, he, he saw our need. He saw us living out this existence in a fallen world with, with sin and struggles, scars and sorrows. And he saw us heading and destined for a frightful future in hell, where any, any glimpse of love and life and laughter would be snuffed out. And all because of our sin. We, you know, we, we, what we've done is, is simply kind of reach over in the driving seat, try and wrench the steering wheel off of God's hands, try and direct our own lives. And in doing so, we make a car crash of the whole thing. Jesus saw our need. And he felt our need. Compassion and love and empathy. 
and he filled our need. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, enduring this hellish death on a cross to give us life and to rescue us from a hellish death. We're going to sing a song a bit later that talks of the cross like this, bearing shame and scoffing rude. In my place, condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a saviour. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life. He's defined love. But now John calls us to show this love to each other. Verse 16, he continues. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If we've been shown love, well, boy, should we show it to each other. We're to see need. We're to feel the needs of our brothers and sisters in the church. And we're to feel those very needs, big or small, at whatever cost. In verse 17, he carries on really practically. He turns to money and finances and possessions. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, literally closes his heart to them, shuts off his feelings to them. If anyone does that, well, how can the love of God be in that person? He's saying, that's not love. We are to show love like that. Now, I'm sure as a church, you can think of many needs that we could fill in the church family. Let me just highlight one to you as an example. It's a need that was brought to my attention very recently as we were chatting in our home group. The need of our shut-in members at church, those who are housebound, not able to meet with us. Now, if nothing else, COVID-19, these lockdown restrictions have helped us to see that need with fresh eyes. We, we begin to feel, I, I have found myself lonely and struggling. Well, this is just a period of two or three months. What if you are a shut-in member of our church who's not been able to get out of the house for months, years on end? It helps us to feel that need. Well, then how can we fill it? I just want to say one thing. I think it's not enough to say that we'll pray for them. Now, it is important to pray. And I hope you do. But we need to do more than that. Because the danger is that if we say, well, I'll pray for you, that we're doing just what John says in verse 18, where where John warns us not just to say we love people, but to show we love them by what we do. We must surely not just pray for them, we should, but we should keep in touch with them. We should ring them. We should write them. We should visit them. We should do the shopping for them. And I know all of these things are going on. And if, if at this point you're, you're thinking, well, uh, oh yeah, that is a need. But I don't know who needs that. Well, as elders, we would love to help you learn to love one another in this way. So please get in touch. We'll give you names. We'll give you people to care for. As I said, I, I have seen this happening. It's been wonderful to see that, especially in this lockdown time. Uh, the way that people have looked after one another in the church family. I know that shopping is the least that people have been doing for each other. And yet, it is a challenge to us, isn't it, that it has been COVID-19 that has flagged this up to us, uh, it, it, making it more urgent to us. And I, I speak to myself, too, in that regard. If we're ready to love each other like Jesus, 
then we are to love our shut-in members, not just during this crisis, but beyond this crisis. And that's just one example of, of seeking to fill a need that we see. We're not to say that we love each other, we're to show that we love each other. Because love is being shown to us. And finally, because love will reassure us that we are God's children. There's this wonderful cycle of, of love and logic going on on this whole passage. That if we're God's children, then we will love each other. And if we love each other, well, we'll find ourselves knowing that we are God's children. And if we're God's children, well, that means we should love one another. And, and if we find ourselves loving one another, well, I know that I'm one of God's children. It's not that loving one another makes me God's child, but it certainly reassures me that I'm living like one of him, one of the children. Now, I'm not sure that I think of love that way, if I'm honest, and that's why this passage is being helpful for me. I tend to think of love for each other as, as helpful to other people, uh, maybe honoring to God, but, but reassuring to me. I confess I don't normally think that way. But John says, I should think that way. In verse 19, he says this, This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. This is how we know. Love for one another is how we know that we are part of God's family, that we're one of his children, that we love our brothers and sisters. And even if our hearts say otherwise, as in verse 20, if our hearts condemn us and they kind of root around in the scrapbooks of our lives and pull out things to blame, things to accuse us with, things to manipulate and make us feel guilty about, well, we're not to be condemned by that because love will reassure us that we are God's children. To illustrate, our hearts can be like... Um, these uh, precocious young pupils and, and students. I've ha had them as a teacher myself. These uh, students turn up in the first few lessons of your subject and they act as if they know it all already. And within a few lessons, they're telling you that they know more than you. Uh, they're telling you that you're wrong. And it doesn't always end well when they start speaking like that because, of course, they don't know what they think they know. And they certainly don't know more than the teacher or the professor. And in this way, sometimes our hearts, our hearts can, can play that part. They, they can be like the upstart, uh, obnoxious pupil who claims to know more than God, our professor. So our hearts say, oh, no, 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 they're not a child of God. Look at what they've done wrong. And we might think, oh, ooh, yeah, maybe, maybe they're right. My, my week's not being so good. But if God says different, who is our heart to disagree? Our heart will just be the upstart pupil who doesn't know what they're talking about. In verse 20, we're told that God is greater than our hearts and he knows all things. And so the point here is, it doesn't matter what your heart says, how guilty you might feel, if God has said something contradictory to that. And so if God says in verse 23, as he does, that it is enough to believe in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he has commanded, God says that is enough, then it's enough. And if you're doing that, that means you are a child of God. And he is your father. And so you can start acting like a child of God, confident, bold, running to him, and not scared of him. 
Because love should reassure you that you are God's child. There's a cycle of logic. Remember, we should, if we're God's children, we should love one another. But if we find ourselves loving one another, well, praise God, that might just be a sign that we are God's child after all. Now, for some of us, it might be that we don't see this love. Yeah, obviously the question has to be raised, and if I don't see this in my life, not, not perfectly, but at least persistently and bit by bit making progress, if I don't see that and there's no evidence that I'm a child of God, and that is a wake-up call to someone listening. And if that is you, well, the verses at the beginning of 1 John are very straightforward. They say, if we say we have no sin, then we deny ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. Maybe tonight that is you and that's what you need to say. I'm not a child of God. Please make me one. But I suspect for many listening in, and certainly many in Beckles Baptist Church, this is like John coming into our church, putting his arm around you, or, or kind of lifting you by the chin and saying, you're doing great. Now, if we were to wheel John in one day when we get to meet together again, or to carry him in, and he were to sit at the front of church, I think John would be so encouraged by our church, that we love one another. And I think John would want you to be encouraged that you love one another. And so you should be reassured that you are a child of God. May God continue to help us love one another. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, that you are a God of love and you have made your home in us by your spirit, and that you have shown us love by your Son. And we ask that we might be made more into his likeness. Please, this week, give us eyes to see need. Give us a heart of compassion that feels people's needs. And help us to walk in your footsteps in filling that need. We thank you above all, though, for the encouragement that love is the sign of a child of God, and that we have confidence to turn to you in prayer now. In Jesus' name, we thank you and we pray for these things. Amen. Well, one of the blessings that John writes of actually for a Christian who's convinced that they are a child of God is that they have confidence and access to speak to their God, to come into his presence. And Doug and Esther Amer are going to lead us as we pray now. Um, so we're going to pass over to them as they lead us in prayer for various needs in our country and around the world. Good evening, church family. Let's uh, come to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we want to pray for churches and the Grace Baptist Association, particularly in Suffolk, where uh, for those churches that are looking for pastors at this current time, we think of Witten Baptist Church, think of Kesgrave and Ockhold. We pray, Lord God, that you would uh, help them to find the, the right man that you have for them. Lord, you've gone before them, and we pray, Lord God, that you would help them in their search. We also pray, Lord, for churches that are, are quite 
small in number and where the load is shared by so few people. And we pray for leaders, for their energy and their perseverance, Lord, in your work. Lord, may they be upheld by their people. We thank you for their faithfulness. Continue to be with them. And Lord, we also want to pray for our, some of our global mission partners. We think of Christchurch Campbell and we thank you for the leadership there from Ben and, and Richard, the elders. We pray particularly for Richard as he has this operation coming up next month. And Lord, um, we pray that you would help them to fulfil their mission to love the Lord Jesus Christ and love one another and also to reach out in the community. We thank you for all their, their efforts to, to do that. And we pray, Lord, that um, they might bear f much fruit from their efforts to reach out to those without Christ. We also pray for the Bible College in Bulawayo uh, in Zimbabwe. We think of Ray Motsi there and we pray for him, Lord. We thank you for his energy and enthusiasm uh, and we pray that it would not flag, that you would keep him safe and help him as he leads the college. We pray for the students. We thank you for uh, finance being made available so that more can study. And as they are between semesters, Lord, we pray that you would uh, give them a good break uh, and when they resume at the end of July we, we pray for them again that they may come with renewed enthusiasm. We pray also for the Reformed Evangelical Church in Ljubljana. We thank you for Peter Novak and Lydia and his family uh, and we pray for them particularly as Peter's still grieving the loss of his father and uh, pray that you'd help him as he leads the church there. Pray for Uska too and her family. We thank you for Oscar uh, and uh, love for you and pray for a family who might come to, to know and to love you and pray for their ongoing health issues. We pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks for, for his great love for each one of us. Amen. Amen. And Lord, we just um, continue to pray for your protection and provision for the persecuted believers around the world who are suffer whose suffering is made worse by the restrictions imposed to prevent the spread of the coronavirus. And we pray, God, that you will continue to provide opportunities for persecuted Christians to reach out to others in their communities with practical help and show them God's love. And we thank you, Father, for all your goodness to us here. And we pray that you would just bless your people all over the world. In Jesus' name. Amen. Before we turn to some notices, we're going to close with one final song together, A Man of Sorrows. I talked about it earlier uh, during the sermon. It talks of the Lord Jesus and his love for us as he laid down his life for us. And the constant refrain, hallelujah, what a saviour.
empty, vile and helpless we Spotless Lamb of God was He Before we formally finish, just some time for some brief notices, uh, just to draw to your attention. Firstly, as with each week, uh, we put together a playlist for the morning and our evening services, a chance for you to sing along and to reflect on the various themes that we've been thinking about in our services. You'll find that on our YouTube channel. The second thing I want to flag up to you is a new course starting this week on Wednesday evening called Identity. We've enjoyed uh, having our course story for the last two weeks, uh, a taster session looking into how Jesus' stories, particularly the story of the two lost sons, uh, connects his story and our story. And whether you came to that or a friend did, or whether you know someone else who, who wished they could have come to that, we'd love you to join us at Identity starting this Wednesday at 7.30 till 9 o'clock. Uh, it will be working through the Gospel of John, uh, talking about the two big questions that we've got to know about, who we are and who God is. And one of the perks of this course as well is simply that it doesn't just look at the, the Gospel of John itself, but also some of the questions that people have, whether Christians and science, how, do they, how does it fit together? Or what about other religions and so on? So please get in touch with me. Uh, my email address will be on the screen just below. And we'd love to have you along, or a friend maybe, if you want to invite them too. On Thursday, we continue with our home groups looking at, at the book of uh, 1 Peter, a couple of verses and then getting together to pray and talk about it together. Your home group leaders will be in touch with you to tell you exactly how your group is going to work on Thursday and on Friday. On the 9th of July, uh, instead of home groups, we're actually going to be having a members meeting. Now, this is one of the few meetings in our church calendar which is open only to members. Uh, an email will have been sent out to you if you are a member. And if you're not on email, then a letter will be in the post to you. If you haven't received anything and you are a member, then please do get in touch and we'll fill you in on how you can meet and what we're going to be talking about during that meeting. That's the 9th of July for our members meeting. And finally, just to flag up to you, 
next Sunday. We continue with our services in the morning, 10.30, continuing in, in the book of Esther, and in the evening in 1 John, thinking about confident Christianity again. Some words to close from 1 Thessalonians, a letter Paul writes to the church there. He says, May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. Father, we pray uh, that in this next week you would help our love to overflow for one another, that you would strengthen us as we wait for the day when Jesus comes back. In his name we pray. Amen. We'll see you soon.